0: When the Holy Spirit comes to you with an offer of repentance, that offer must be taken right then because there is no assurance that that offer will come again. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at the Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer Him a word. Gracious Father, we pray that the response of Your people so long ago would not be our response today. We pray, Lord, that as the question is put to us today, if the Lord be God, follow Him, and if Baal be God, Follow him. We pray that as that question is asked to us, we would in unison of voices shout together. Amen. The Lord, he is God. He will rule my heart, my life, my all. I pray that that is our response and I pray, Lord, that that is the response that glorifies Jesus Christ in us this morning. For we preach his word. We surrender to his lordship. We love him as our Savior, and we just ask that you glorify him in our words this morning. For in his name we pray, amen. So verse 19, now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah. The stage is now set, everyone will be gathering here on Mount Carmel, and this will be what very may well be described as the greatest showdown in scripture between good and evil, at least the greatest showdown in scripture between good and evil outside of, of course, the cross. And so as they're gathering here in our passage to Mount Carmel, let's just begin just by seeing how once again, as Elijah speaks here to Ahab, the roles have become reversed. Ahab is now playing the the part of the, of the submissive one, and Elijah is playing the part of the king. Elijah tells him, therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. So he says gather all of Israel, and he says gather all these 450 prophets of Baal and prophets of Asherah. Even now we see a distinction between God's people and not God's people. Even after so much idolatry and adultery of their hearts, even still... God sees a distinction between his people and not his people. Gather my people and gather the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Elijah says, gather them to me. So this proclamation is going to go out and the proclamation is going to be gather together at Mount Carmel for Elijah. We will gather there for this man, Elijah. He has something for us. Notice how Elijah doesn't indicate the purpose, the reason He doesn't say anything about now it's time for rain. Of course, surely everyone's thinking this, hoping this. They've been praying for this, but he doesn't indicate this is the purpose. He just says, gather unto me. So the proclamation would have gone out. Everyone is to gather at Mount Carmel unto my God is Yahweh, unto this man whose name is my God is Yahweh. And so they gather here together at Mount Carmel. And here's where we'll sort of pick up. And we'll begin just by spending some little, a little bit of time to, to draw a picture, so to speak, in our mind's eye of what the scene must have looked like as they're gathering here onto Mount Carmel. Why did God choose Mount Carmel? And why is this taking place at this one specific location? Because Mount Carmel is not in Samaria. It's outside. There's going to, there was going to have to be some travel that everybody uh, underwent some travel to go from Samaria to Mount Carmel. So why did God choose this place, Mount Carmel? Well, first of all, he chooses Mount Carmel, we would assume, because it is a mount. It is elevated. It's about 1800 feet above the plain around it. Today, we know where Mount Carmel was. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered what is sure to have been the altar that was used not just by Elijah, but we'll talk in a minute about others as well. So this altar, if it is the location that archaeologists believe it was, it would have been visible not just from the mount itself, but from the plain around it. So it was, it was at the peak of this mountain sort of area. And even those gathered around on the plain around it would have been able to look up at the top and see the altar and certainly see the fire that we know is going to come down. So it was this location that was elevated, easy for people to gather, easy for people to see. It was sort of central in Israel. If we picture Israel as this long, uh, tall, I should say tall, sort of narrow strip of land, not, not as wide as it is tall, Mount Carmel would have been about halfway from north to south. And it's going to be on the west coast, on the Mediterranean coast of Israel, so it's more centrally located. It's going to be a little bit of a trip for Ahab and the prophets and for many of the people and for Elijah himself to travel here to Mount Carmel. But it's going to be a place that is fairly desolate. Today we know of the area of Mount Carmel near modern day, I think it's called Haifa, Israel. We know that to be an area of limestone and flint. And the mount itself would would have been a, a stony, craggy, not a fertile mountain with trees and bushes, but a craggy, stony, rocky mount with lots of naturally occurring caves and caverns. And this mount overlooks the Mediterranean Sea. And we know from a little bit later in the story that that is where the rain is going to come from. That's where the clouds are going to come in from. Is from the Mediterranean Sea. So later in the story, this location is going to be the location that first sees the rains coming. But this Mount Carmel, not only just a desolate, rocky, craggy, centrally located, easy to see, easy to find place, also has other significance to our story as well, because Mount Carmel has long, long been known as a place of worship. For a short time, it was known as a place of worship for Yahweh. There was an unauthorized altar there. We say unauthorized because God clearly said in His Word that Jerusalem is the only place where sacrifices were to be made. But there was a time in which sacrifices were made to Yahweh on Mount Carmel, but that has long since passed away. For many, many years, centuries prior to that, and even after the altar to to Yahweh was abandoned, even after that, Mount Carmel has been known as a place of worship, a holy place, if you will, holy unto pagan gods. The ancient Egyptians knew knew Mount Carmel as Holy Hill. The ancient Assyrians referred to Mount Carmel as the Mount of Baal. And so it has been closely associated with pagan worship, with idolatrous pagan sacrifices, particularly sacrifices unto Baal for hundreds of years. And so God and Elijah are both choosing... Baal's home turf, there could not have been a location where Baal would be thought of as stronger than Mount Carmel. So if there's anywhere that Baal can show himself, it will be on Mount Carmel. Elijah and God are both, uh, Elijah, of course, by way of God's instructions, they are choosing Baal's home turf to be the place for this greatest of showdowns between God, the true living God, and the false God, Baal. So let's just take a moment in our mind and let's try to gather to our our thoughts what this would have looked like, what the atmosphere would have been like on this moment. This is taking place early in the morning. Later on next week, we'll see how the prophets of Baal are going to do their incantations and, and their chants from, it's, we're told, early morning until noon. So we know that the gathering here is taking place early in the morning, just as the sun is rising. Now the sun, of course, rises in the east, so the sun is rising over the land, not over the sea to the west, but it's rising over the land. And so you know that, that feeling of early morning. You know how early mornings feel. Just as the sun is coming over the horizon, you get that fresh, moist, misty kind of atmosphere. Not so. Because there's still no dew. There's still no rain. You get, now there's this arid, dry, hot, yet another day of rainless, waterless, dewless heat as the sun begins to climb over the land to shine onto Mount Carmel here. So this is the scene early in the morning. Elijah would have been here first because everybody is gathering to Elijah. Elijah's not going to make a grand entrance. He's there as even the first people begin to arrive. We can imagine that Elijah has spent all night in prayer, probably here on Mount Carmel, praying to God all night, receiving, as we'll see a little later in the story, receiving the instructions, receiving even the last minute instructions about what he's to say and how he's to say it and what he's to do. And so here's Elijah having prayed all night, that is, he is spiritually prepared in every way. God has prepared him for this moment for three years. And God has prepared him through the night as he has labored in his effectual prayers, as we read from James chapter 5, the effectual prayers of, of Elijah. And so here he is waiting for the people to gather unto him. And as the people begin to gather to him here on Mount Carmel, they would have climbed up this elevation of about 1,800 feet. And the people gathering here are going to be this mixture of Of course, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. One thing we haven't mentioned before is all of these prophets of Baal and prophets of Asherah were not Israelites. They were foreigners. And so as foreigners, they probably were Assyrians or Phoenicians, but they would have looked different from the other ethnic Jews there. Their facial features would have been easily recognizable as foreigners. So... Through all this time when the prophets of Baal are sort of ruling the land, not only are they ruling the land as prophets of a foreign god, they are ruling the land, so to speak, as foreigners themselves. And so here are these prophets of Baal. They would have been attired in probably some bright clothing, bright colors. They would have uh, been dressed to make a spectacle of themselves. They would have been wearing lots of jewelry that clittered and clanked as they walked up the mountain, the, the earrings, the headbands, the bracelets, all of those have been clinking and clanking and the big tall headdresses because they are a spectacle unto themselves. These foreigners who are easily recognizable, even if they were dressed the same as everyone else, they're easily recognizable. But in addition to that, they're wearing clothing that could not be more opposite from the Israelites' clothing because the Israelites now, they're coming out of three years of famine and drought they are skin and bones they are barely alive they are dying daily all of these israelites that are gathering here would have would have been people that had lost probably family members over the last 3 years lost a spouse to the drought lost an elderly parent to the famine or lost a child to the famine and their clothes would have been dull and ragged out and and, and ripped apart and and missing shoes and here comes these prophets of Baal and all of their gaudiness and their arrogance as they're looking down upon the people because these prophets of Baal truly hate the people of Israel. So here they are gathered and then into this would have come Ahab and Jezebel. Now how would Ahab have come to the location? He would not have arrived on a chariot because the mountain trail, again, this is a rocky sort of a mountain. There wouldn't have been this wide road to drive a chariot up. He probably would have been carried to the top on a litter. We've seen in the movies, you know, where there's like four guys and they pick up these two poles and there's a litter on it. And in this litter would have been Ahab and Jezebel. I picture, in my own mind, I picture Ahab as sort of a fat guy that uh, uh, is sort of a buffoon. He's a very poor leader. He is very poor with people, but he's very pampered. He hasn't missed a meal. Uh, His horses are fine. His mules are fine. The people are starving, but he's just fine. But he's sort of this inept, incompetent leader. We see this even in the passage today, because even in the passage today, this will become much clearer in some passages over the next coming Sundays. But even today we see this because Elijah says, Gather unto me... The prophets, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophet of of Asherah who eat at not your table, Ahab, but Jezebel's table. So even there, Ahab is already beginning to mock Ahab and his prophets because he doesn't say they eat at your table, they eat at your wife's table, indicating sort of a stab, sort of a twist there to say, we all know that Jezebel is really the one calling the shots. So he was not a very competent leader. He was sort of a, sort of a clown, sort of a buffoon, I would take him to be. But here he is being carried on this litter, wearing his fine clothes, wearing his fine jewelry. Here is Jezebel, who I picture as a, as a young, beautiful woman. And they're being carried by litter up here to, to this most fateful of mornings to meet with this man, Elijah, by his summoning. Again, Elijah has not told anybody what the purpose of the meeting is, but we can, we can tell what the, the, talk would have been, the hope would have been, now we're going to have an end to this drought. Because Elijah was the one who called the drought to begin with, and Elijah is calling all the people unto himself, so certainly everyone is hoping that maybe this is going to be the end to this drought. But beyond that, let's sort of picture in our mind what the attitudes would have been. The prophets of Baal and Asherah If they hate the Israelites, they absolutely hate Elijah. The man whose very name declares Yahweh is the true God. So they despise him. He has cast this curse of a drought upon the land that they cannot stop. Try though they may, they can do nothing about this. So they hate him for all that they are worth. And certainly they have said among themselves... Elijah will not leave this mountain alive. We're going to meet him here. We're going to let him have his say, and he's done for. We're going to make sure of that. So there's this animosity. There's this great hatred on the part of the prophets here, these foreign prophets. Now the people, how do they feel about Elijah? How do they feel about this meeting? Again, certainly they are hoping that this is the end of the drought. But do they also hate Elijah? Or are they encouraged by Elijah? Are they supportive of Elijah? What's going on in their hearts? I think probably a mixture of all the above. There's probably Israelites there who wouldn't care if these prophets of Baal do kill Elijah, because certainly they don't really care for these foreign prophets coming into their country, into their nation, and and having this place of authority over them, but they'll sure take prophets of Baal over a drought any day. So sure, give me the false prophets, but give me rain, give me dew, because we're starving. So there's certainly that going on where people would say, well, I don't much care between the two, but between the two, I'll take the false prophets. There's probably others who hate Elijah as well, because they have identified him as the one who is the cause of their troubles and of their trials. Again, certainly people are there, many people, probably most of the people there have lost loved ones over the past three years. But are there those who are encouraged by Elijah and support Elijah? What about the 7,000, the remnant of the 7,000 that we'll hear about next week, the 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal? Are they represented there? Maybe so. Maybe there's some of those there who are true Yahweh worshipers. We would assume that Obadiah is there. We're not told what sort of part he played in the organizing of this event, but we are told that he is the head of Ahab's house. So certainly an event such as this one was not put together without Obadiah's directing of it and and dotting all the I's and crossing the T's and making everything work because that was what he did. So Obadiah is here and probably some of those who are still in their hearts, Yahweh worshipers. Now, how do they feel about this? Have they been praying for Elijah? Have they been lifting him up in prayer? God, protect this man. What is he going to say? Protect him. Let us hear what he has to say. God, speak through this man, Elijah. Certainly they're praying for him. Perhaps they're fearful. Maybe Elijah is going to... Ask us to identify ourselves. Maybe he's going to stand up and say, all the Yahweh worshipers stand up. And what will we do then? So they're fearful for themselves. They're probably fearful for Elijah, but they're probably also hopeful that maybe God will now speak with power. Maybe he'll send rain. Maybe he'll bless us with with uh With dew again, maybe he will remove this famine of the word from the land. Maybe now is the time in which Israel is going to turn. So all kinds of emotions going on, all kinds of different people, all kinds of different attitudes, all kinds of different feelings and thoughts are all taking place. And then amidst all of that is this man, Elijah. Elijah, who is standing in stark contrast to everyone else there. In 2 Kings, we read once again that he was a hairy man. Now, we don't know whether that means that he had lots of body hair, big bushy beard, long wavy hair, or whether he dressed in clothing that was made from animal hair. Probably it means a little bit of both. But similar to John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah who wore a coat of camel's hair, so Elijah is called a hairy man. He would have looked like a wild mountain man. He would have looked different from everyone there. He would have looked In my mind's eye, very, very intense. You know the old photographs from 150, 200 years ago where it would be this family portrait and the the patriarch of the family had this big, long, bushy beard and he had these eyes that just jumped out of the black and white picture. You know what I'm talking about? That's kind of how I picture Ahab, with eyes of fire. Like you didn't want to get into a staring contest with, with Elijah. And so here he is completely prepared by the Lord for everything that's coming at him. And everyone who's making their way up the mountain, most of them are convinced in their mind that Elijah is not coming off that mountain alive. He's coming feet first. But God has prepared both ends of the story. So here we, we gather together. Verse 19. All of Israel to me at Mount Carmel, in addition to those who are not Israel, the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel in obedience to Elijah's word. Verse 21, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? So notice, first of all, that Elijah comes near to the people. What he has to say, he's going to say to the people. He's going to direct his comments to the people, not to the false prophets. Not to Ahab, not to Jezebel. Instead, he is engaging the people. I take it from his words here that there's sort of a pleading nature to what he's saying. As oftentimes we find in Scripture, when when someone gives a sermon or a word from the Lord, we take it to mean that, that the, what we're given in the Scripture is just sort of a summary and more was said, but we're given sort of the summary of it. We're not getting given the word for word entirety of, of whatever sermon or speech was given. And maybe that was the case here. Maybe Elijah said more words than this, but this is the summary of what he has said, what he said. How long will you go limping between these two opinions? But whatever he said, he said it to the people, not to the false prophets not to Ahab, and I I take it in sort of a a pleading sort of way, as though he's earnestly pleading with them. He's not just there to to condemn them, but he's pleading with them, turn, change, hear and believe and forsake the false idols and turn to the Lord. So our takeaway from this is that even though he's not talking to these prophets of Baal, We don't take that to mean that that God could care less about false prophets. He could care less about the salvation of Gentiles. His his man speaking his word doesn't even plead with the Gentile prophets to to repent and believe. So we take that to mean that this is not saying to us that God doesn't care that Gentiles would believe and, and convert as well. Because we know in just two previous stories just how far God and Elijah both went to secure one lost Gentile sheep, the widow in Zarephath. So we know that God is not saying, oh, I just only care about my people and and, uh, literally to hell with the Gentiles and the, the false prophets. That's not what God's saying at all. But what we take from this is this, that when the Holy Spirit comes to you with an offer of repentance, that offer must be taken right then, because there is no assurance that that offer will come again. We know from Paul's words to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 6, that when the Holy Spirit acts upon a heart and is offering the gift of repentance, that should be taken, that should be jumped upon, that should be responded to immediately. Now is not the time for the false prophets to repent. God may give them their their opportunity, but now is not their opportunity. So Elijah hears something like Paul, as Paul shakes the dust from his feet to the Jews and says, I've brought to you the gospel of Messiah. You've rejected, rejected, rejected. So I shake the dust off my feet. Not to, not to say that I'm done with you or I give up on you, but, but that was a gesture of saying you are not God's people. So Paul shakes the dust from his sandals to the Jews to go to the Gentiles. Here is is another form of that, only it's reversed, where Elijah is shaking the dust from his sandals towards the Gentiles and turning to the Jews and saying, now is your time for repentance. Now is your time in which the Holy Spirit is coming to you in power and He's saying to you, this is your opportunity for repentance. Repentance. Take it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth that transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of his sanctifying and disciple-making word.